Well, welcome to church, New Spring. I hope everybody's doing well today. Happy uh, Super Bowl weekend. I hope you guys are ready for a little football and some big calories tonight. Hey, Anderson Campus, would you help me welcome all of our campuses, those joining online, and anybody who's here for the very first time? We're grateful to have you. Um, a couple of things up front before we jump into the, the text I'm excited to share with you. We have just concluded as a church our overflow offering. We do that at the end of every year. Those that have been around New Spring for a while, you know our journey. Uh, God allowed us to get out of debt last year. And so one of the things that we are, com- yeah, woo, come on somebody, out of debt. Uh, you know, uh, one of the things that we love is to see the Lord show up um, in really significant ways through everybody being a part of this. And church, you gave above your tithes $2.78 million during the overflow season to the ministry of, of this church so that we might be able to do a couple of things. Let me tell you what we're doing right now. One, we are just in a few short days going to be able to start cutting down some trees and getting the ground ready for our Aiken campus to get their facility. So Aiken, we're excited. We actually have a picture of the facility there that's going to be happening down there in Aiken where they are seeing just, again, uh, consistently overflowing growth. And so we're excited about that. In addition to that, this gift will get us going not just with a campus built, but we have a 2030 vision to see 10 churches planted in the earth. And so uh, church plants number two and three are going to be funded by this overflow offering. Church number one that I want to put before you is Chris and Kathleen Dew. And Chris and Kathleen, yep, they're going to be headed down to St. Petersburg, Florida with a, with a team to plant a church. And so y'all be in prayer for them, but we're able to be wind at their backs. And then in addition to that, we've got Josh and Taylor Bull who are going to be headed down to Melbourne, Australia to plant a church uh, back in their home nation. And uh, and you're going to see Josh and Taylor on the stage here in a couple of weeks because we're going to lay hands and pray over them because it's almost time for them to go ahead and relocate to Australia. So I did, again, on behalf of the elders and the pastors of New Spring Church, I just want to look you in the eye and say thank you. Thank you for not just believing the gospel for your own heart, but being a part of activating it in your own lives And we're going to continue to plant churches. We're going to continue to put all of our campuses in permanent homes. And y'all, we're going to be able to do it debt-free. But the kingdom of God moves at the speed of sacrifice. It's not one family or one person writing a big check. It's all of us saying we trust God and we believe. And so we're going to build the church. And we're going to do something in our day that has an eternal reward on investment. So I wanted to celebrate that with you at the start of this, uh, this series. One more thing I want to celebrate before we move into this text. Last week we opened up our semester of classes and groups, and all over the state, on campus and off campus, we had folks that gathered uh, in these classes and groups. If you're looking for a way to take your your spiritual devotion to the next level, you know you want to be trained a bit more, discipled a bit more, we've got groups and classes for you. We've got young adult groups, we've got financial peace groups, we've got groups for men, we've got groups for women, we've got all kinds, and so again, I just want to make sure I put that in front of you. If you didn't jump into one of these last week at your campus, they can tell you about that more at the end of service, but take advantage, you've only missed one week, we've got these rolling out right now this semester of our classes and groups. Uh, if you love a good Bible study, would you say amen? Amen. amen. Alright, now that you've got your, uh, your notes ready, you can open up your New Spring app, and we've got all the notes preloaded there, but we're going to start today this conversation around this series called Secrets of the Kingdom. And so we're going to look in and lean at Jesus, who is a genius and master teacher. Now, we know this, of course, but I want you to really get this into your heart. Jesus was an absolute genius teacher, and he taught in the rabbinical way, the rabbi way, the eastern way. 
And he taught in such a way to see those that were coming to follow him become, this is the rabbinical way, not just to be a follower, but to become just like your rabbi. That was the goal of discipleship in the day of Christ. That those that would follow him wouldn't just be saved, but they would actually do the very things the rabbi did. I want you to know that's what Jesus is trying to do with his teaching. And so he taught in a, in a way that is maybe a word that is a little bit unfamiliar. It's this word called parables. So I want to start by asking you the question, if you're taking notes, what's a parable? What is a parable? Uh, this is very short form. It's just a story. Parables made up of two words. The etymology here is that there's a, a story that is thrown alongside to teach. So it's a story that Jesus would throw out. And uh, this is kind of a cool fact. There are 40 parables that Jesus taught through in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 40 of them. And 40 is a significant number in the scriptures. Many of you will recognize that number, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness for the people of God. 40 days Jesus fasted and prayed before uh, he started his public ministry. 40 is kind of this number of testing, it's this number of revealing, and that's exactly what the parables do. The parables will reveal things. The parables will illuminate things. The parables also hide some things. Uh, One of the things that is said oftentimes as Jesus teaches in parables, and it was said right there in the roll-in, he would teach the parable and then he would say this phrase, anyone with ears to hear, let him hear. Or anyone with eyes to see, let him see. Let him him see. Uh, The point is that there is some digging and some curiosity and some discovery that King Jesus is inviting us into. He's not just going to give you the answer key. He wants to invite you in to come and walk with him, to journey with him, and layer by layer, he's going to reveal some things and teach us some things through these parables. Now, over the next few weeks, we're going to be teaching these parables from the Gospel of Luke. Everybody say, Luke. And the reason we're going to teach it from the Gospel of Luke is because Luke loved parables. There's more parables in the Gospel of Luke than any of the other parable or any of the other gospels. And there's some significant parables that are shared in Luke that aren't shared anywhere else. That's the ones we're going to teach you. So like today, I'm going to teach through the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan is only taught in the Gospel of Luke. Another one that I'm going to get the chance to teach, I'm going to get to teach the prodigal son later on in the series, only taught in the Gospel of Luke. So as our teaching team unpackages and puts these parables on display, you need to know that Luke, uh, who was the one Greek, the one Gentile that's recorded writing scripture, he was showing us how to discover and walk with Jesus. Now, where did it get this name, the secrets of the kingdom? Jesus actually said those words himself in Luke chapter 8. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus said this. His disciples, they come up and they said, and when his disciples asked him, What this parable meant, you see, he taught these parables and many times it wasn't just obvious, so they would come later and ask, what does this parable mean? He said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. And so there's some things that God wants to reveal through these parables. There's some secrets, and I want you to write this down. The key to all of this is to understand that Christ is the key. Christ is the key. And so like a good pair of glasses, where are you out there, my contact and glasses people? Show me your hands. Me too. I get up in the morning, I can't see a thing until I get my contacts in, right? But Christ is the key to open up and let us see and understand these parables. And today I'm going to show you something that Christ has revealed when we understand that he is the key to the good Samaritan. Now, all of that stated, i got to come back over here and sit down because i got to tell you something. It happened, y'all. Some of y'all are going to relate. But a couple of weeks ago, I went to bed on a Tuesday, and I woke up on a Wednesday injured. 
Anybody ever experienced this? You went to bed, fine, healthy. Everything was fine. But then you wake up the next morning and somehow, someway, through your sleep, you hurt yourself. Y'all, I don't know what's going on, but I'm just giving a little bit of a precursor. If I have to hit a, a, a stretch, I think it's sciatica, I think. But then I was told by my doctor, if it hurts below your knee, it's not just sciatica. You've got some things going on with your spinal cord. There's a slip disc. There's an impinged nerve. There's some kind of thing that's going on. And so, y'all, I, ibuprofen won't even touch it. And so I'm just saying all this out loud that I am officially welcome to that old age. It's when your 40s is what I've been told. It's when it happens. So strong boomer energy in the room this morning. Um, Gen Z, you'll get there one day, okay? But I have no idea what I did. It just hurts all the time. So y'all can be praying for me, okay? That's why I've got this up here. Now, all that stated, I'm going to try to do my best to sit down as we lean in to the gospel of Luke. And let's read Jesus' words, okay? Let's open up our Bibles. Luke chapter 10. We'll pick it up in uh, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. When you guys see lawyer, you should hear, boo. Now, what's really funny about this, I said this in the first service, the boo in this one is, is true, but you know what? We need, we need good lawyers, amen? We need Christian lawyers. I was telling this joke in the first service. I promise on God, I just greeted a first-time family that's moved here from Arizona and they're looking at New Spring today. And when I was saying hello to them and welcoming them to the service, she told me she's a lawyer. And I said, well, I just need to go ahead and brace. I'm talking about lawyers today. She goes, I'm a good lawyer. I'm a Christian lawyer. And sure enough, she handed me her card. She's got John 316 right on her card. Anyway, um, this is not a good lawyer. You're going to see. Uh, but we need good lawyers out there. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, him as Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That question of asking Jesus what to do to inherit eternal life is asked 19 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 19 times the human posture is how do I live forever? 19 times there's something natural in us that goes, how do I get to heaven? What must I do? I just want to say just very clearly, I want to look at all of our campuses in the eyes, and I want to say that is something for all of us, young and old, that is a human condition, that we've got this longing for eternity Ecclesiastes actually says it this way, God has woven eternity into the hearts of every man and woman because we've been created in his image. And right here, this lawyer was asking about eternity. And Jesus, listen to me, Jesus is going to tell this parable to answer that question. I want us to catch this. Everything we see the master teacher do right here is because he is doing one-on-one -on -one evangelism in this moment with this lawyer. He has a heart to answer the question of how this man might enter into the kingdom of heaven, how this man might get eternal life. He's not intimidated by the question, but he's going to hit it head on. He's not going to just throw out a bunch of word salad and nuance. He's going to actually answer the question. And he's going to love him well by giving him clarity, okay? So, teacher, what, I, what, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what's written in the law? What's written in the Torah? You're an expert. How do you read it? How do you interpret it? And he answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Look right here. And your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you've been tracking with us at the church, you know that we just came out of a series called One Another where Jesus gave this thing called the Great Commandment when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he taught, yeah, the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, 
And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And I just want to point out, this lawyer was listening because he answered rightly. He answered the correct way. And he said, hey, I heard you, Jesus. We love an invisible God by loving a visible neighbor. So love your neighbor as yourself. He answered that way. And Jesus replied to him, you have answered correctly. Do this. Everybody say, do this. Do this and you will live. Today, we're going to talk about an emphasis on action. The emphasis of this is action. There's some doing that Jesus wants to put his finger on for this man and I believe for us. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He couldn't help himself. He's a good lawyer. Had to do a little cross-examining. And he, he wants to get into definitions of words. So Jesus, who is my neighbor? But I just want to point this out. The question reveals his own heart. Who's my neighbor? He's revealing his own heart here. And so Jesus doesn't respond with an, a direct answer. He responds with that parable. He responds with a story. He throws it out alongside to help us understand. And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, the priest, saw the man beat, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and he saw him, he passed on the other side. Verse 33, but a Samaritan. Would you say that phrase out loud with me on all of our campuses? One, two, three. But a Samaritan. But a Samaritan. As he journeyed, he came to where he was. And when he saw him, had compassion, went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring out oil, pouring out wine. Then he set him up on his own animal. He brought him to an inn. He took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper saying these words, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Let me just pause right there and say that's a good way to get extorted. Just tell me whatever. Here's my credit card. Tell me what the bill is when I come back. This is not a skeptic or a cynic. He's really trustworthy, I guess. And, and he said, hey, when I, when I come back, I'll repay you. And then Jesus comes out of the story, verse 36, and he looks at the man in the eyes. And he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed mercy. And then Jesus said to him, I believe he locked eyes with him, and he says these exact things. You go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father God, we've read your word, and now we invite you, Lord, by your spirit. Would you read us? Would you encourage us? Would you equip us? Would you build your church so that when we leave the facility today, we might go and be the body of the church to the world? Help hide me behind the finished work of your cross, and Lord, would you touch every single man, woman, young and old, that we might know what we have been called to do in response to hearing this good news. We ask all of this in Christ's name. And we say together, amen, amen. 
I want to start the conversation today by just uh, pointing out something that years ago I was introduced to by a social scientist by the name of Malcolm Gladwell. Anybody ever read anything about Malcolm Gladwell, heard his podcast? Pretty famous sociologist up in New York. He talked about this thing called the bystander effect. I want you to write that phrase down, the bystander effect. Now, the bystander effect is something that really exploded in America's social science back in the 1960s. Because there was this unbelievable crime that occurred up in New York. And uh, here's what the bystander effect is. I want you to get the definition. I'm going to put it up on the screen. But here's what the bystander effect is. It's this. It's a social psychological phenomenon where individuals are less likely to offer help to a victim when there are other people present. Why? The presence of others creates a diffusion of responsibility where each individual feels less personally responsible to intervene because they assume someone else will take action. Somebody else will do something. The term was coined after the infamous murder of a lady named Kitty Genovese in 1964 where it was reported that many bystanders, witness, excuse me, bystanders witnessed the attack but did not intervene or call for help. In short terms, they did nothing. Uh, the New York Times was posted an article uh, after all of this was discovered, and here was the headline of the New York Times. It said, 37 who saw murder didn't call the police. That's what the headline said. And so this is something I want to just point, point out that's inside of us. They've done many an analysis of this. This is why, maybe like me, you've been driving down the interstate in your community and you see somebody on the side of the road and they've got a flat tire and uh, what do you do? Come on, you're in church. What do you do? You just drive on by. Why do you drive by? Because somebody else will do something, right? I mean, look at all these people. I got kids in the car. I got my wife in the car. I got a meeting to be at. I got some pastoral work to do. You know, we give ourselves all of the rational reasons as to why it'll be somebody else's responsibility and not mine. I just want to say that is human nature. That's my nature. That's our nature. It's something that they have identified as a thread that especially when there's crowds around, we diffuse the responsibility. It is in us to say somebody else will do something. And I just want to say to us today we, by the Spirit of Jesus, are going to fight the bystander effect. Amen? I want to take extreme responsibility for my world. And today's message, I want to invite you to do the same. I want to invite you to recognize that there's something in our communities and in our world right now that because there are so many atrocities, and social media has made us unbelievably aware of this, 24-7 news and the access points we have to all the brokenness that's around the world, all the needs that are around the world, it can feel overwhelming. But one of the things that can happen is the very thing that my sister Meredith talked about last week. My sister Meredith talked about this last week when she pointed out C.S. Lewis' quote. It was this, we can simply think that loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. I felt that resonate with me last week. And so one of the things that Jesus is going to do here for this man in this story is he's going to point out that it wasn't, listen to me, it wasn't the bystander effect that, that caused this man and these men to walk by, the, the one that had been robbed and beaten. There was nobody else around, that it was actually something else that was driving this. And so he's going to answer the question, how, how might I be saved? How might I answer eternal life? He answers that rightly. He says, you're correct. And then he says, 
he asked the question, well, then who is my neighbor? Now, let's get into the context. This is really important. Listen to me. Lean in. One of the things that can happen in the Bible is we can think today it means something different today than it meant back then. This is really practical when you're reading your Bible. We can't, listen, we can't read the Bible outside of this lens. It has to first mean to us today what it meant to them when they first heard it. Are you with me? It cannot mean to us today something different than it meant, meant, meant to them 2,000 years ago. And so we've got to get into the context of the Jewish Samaritan world in the context of this religious, irreligious world if we're going to get the value of what's happening here. And so Jesus is talking to a man who knew all the rules, who knew all the things here, but he had not yet been transformed here. He was talking to a man who had information but not transformation, and he loves him enough to reveal his heart, and here was the thing that he actually did. The man asked, who is my neighbor? And Jesus He actually shows us that the secret of the kingdom is not found in defining your neighbor, but rather in being a neighbor. Why don't you tap your neighbor and say, the key is to be a neighbor. Oh, see, we need more energy than that. Come on, the key is to be a neighbor. Yeah, so the question is, how are we to be a neighbor? And uh, let me get us into the context of this moment in time here because what we have is Jesus in the Jewish Samaritan first century, these two groups of people did not get along. Now the backstory goes hundreds of years before Jesus was on the scene. The northern uh, kingdom and the southern kingdom of Israel, they split Israel and Judah and Israel ended up really getting in bed quite literally with a lot of the gods and worshipers of the others in their world, the Canaanites, the Mennonites, all these other ites. And so they started to syncretize their their worship. And so instead of worshiping Yahweh, they started to worship all these other false gods. And the southern Jewish people in the nation of Judah held that against them. They called this group of people the Samaritans. And so they did not do anything socially with them. And Jesus, listen to me, Jesus was actually accused of being a Samaritan because he was from the north up in Galilee. And so I told you earlier that the key is to understand that Jesus is the key. He was referred to as a Samaritan over and over and over again. John 8 is probably the most specific one if you want to write that down. They they called him the derogatory phrase, oh, you're just a Samaritan. And so Jesus is talked about as being a Samaritan. Now, a couple of things I want to point out. So in the story, the parable, uh, we're up in Jerusalem where the story starts, and it said that the man was walking to Jericho. This walk is about a 3,000-foot drop in, in sea level height, from about 2,200 down to 800 below sea level. And so you're going from Jericho down, or excuse me, from Jerusalem. Everybody say Jerusalem. Down to Jericho. Say Jericho. See, I want you guys to be able to teach this one to your kids, okay? So Jerusalem, this is the city of the theologians, the city of the temple, the city of the worshipers of Yahweh. And this man was leaving that place and was going down to Jericho. Jericho is down by the Dead Sea. It's down in the desert. It's actually, if you recall, the first city that Joshua and the people of God came up against when they entered the promised land. And so this man, as he was walking down, 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 he ends up getting beaten. We know from first century that this was a place where robbers always hung out because there's these caverns and ravines. They jump out, they beat him, they take his money and they leave him for dead on the side of the road. And then the Bible says that both a priest and a Levite come along and what do they do, New Spring Church? What do the priest and the Levite do? They did nothing. They walked on by. 
They walked on by doing nothing. But a Samaritan comes along, and this, when Jesus is telling the story, would have sent electricity through the man listening. But a Samaritan comes along, and he does a lot. I actually, uh, you should do this as well. I actually found 11 things that the, the good Samaritan does. I just wrote them all down. It's, he, he came to him. He saw him. He had compassion. He went to him. He bound up his wounds. He poured out oil. He poured out wine. He set him on his animal. He brought him to an inn. He took care of him overnight. He took out two denarii, his credit card, and he gave it to the innkeeper. And he said these words, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Eleven things the Samaritan does. Massive. I want you to write this down, but I want you to see that the good Samaritan has a bias towards action. The good Samaritan has a, an emphasis on doing. I think this is a massive moment for the Christian church, especially in America. And I just want to raise my hand and say, we have such a proclivity to know all the right answers, but to not do the right things. I think one of the things that the Lord is showing us even now today is that God has got some stuff for his people to do. Now the key to this, this entire passage, I told you the key is Christ and the key is to understand, I believe, that Jesus is the good Samaritan. And so when you read this story, we have a tendency when we read a story, we always read ourselves into the story. And so I don't know who you think you are when you read the story of the good Samaritan, but might I suggest what Pastor Billy Graham suggested. We need to read ourselves into the story as the one who had been beaten and robbed and left for dead. Don't, don't read yourself into the story as the one who is the good Samaritan, not yet. Don't, don't read yourself into the story as the one who's the religious, gruff folks that couldn't bother themselves with the needs of the people around them. Don't read yourself into the story, but rather, listen to me, read yourself into the story as the one who had been beaten and robbed and left for dead. Why? Well, the reason is because just like this man, we started up in Jerusalem with a relationship with God, Genesis 1 and 2. And just like our father and mother, Adam and Eve, sin came into our world. And from that, Genesis 3, we've been on a downward spiral, walking from relationship with God, the city of God, down to the, the desert of death. That is the human journey. And on our way, we've run into who Jesus declared, John 10, 10, is called the thief. And... Uh, and it says that he is a thief, that he has come to do what? He's come to kill, steal, and destroy. That that's the devil and exactly what he's doing. And every one of you, you might be here, and maybe you recognize this in your own life, that there's been some things in your life that you feel like you've been robbed, spiritually speaking, that sin and death have caused us to all be robbed and left on the side of the road. And us recognizing this is a massive big moment in our lives. I just want to point out, Jesus, if he is in fact the good Samaritan, and we are in fact those that have been left on the side of the road, Jesus would point out that the religious elite have zero ability to help us. Religion can't save us. Religious activity can't save our souls. As a matter of fact, religious activity won't even come over and give a cold drink of water. It demands of you to get up and dust yourself off and come with it. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British pastor, said this. He said, Christianity is the most simple religion in the world. Why? Because all the other religions demand that you act and earn and work, but Christianity only has one demand. You know what it is? That we receive. The good news of the gospel is that you and I have nothing to offer Christ except to receive his good care. Amen? And so the good Samaritan comes over and cares for us. He goes, not just a cold drink of water, but an unbelievable spirit of generosity flowing, sympathy and sacrifice, compassion and service, and ultimately spends his money and his future money to end up saving this man, this this man that was left for dead on the side of the road. And so Reverend Billy Graham talks about how this is exactly you and I. We are the man and woman that have been beaten on the side of the road. And maybe we're unconscious. Maybe we're completely, we don't even know where we are. But this is exactly, if you've been saved by grace through faith, you know this experience where Christ scooped you up and he's healed you. And the, the two big giveaways here are that he poured out two things. Do you remember what he poured out? He poured out, the first thing was, Oil. Now, what does oil represent? This is the, the Holy Spirit. He pours out his spirit to heal us and to revive us. Oil, of course, in the first century was used as, as medicine. It was used like, like you would use neosporin on your wounds. And so he poured out his oil. But he didn't just pour out his Holy Spirit. He poured out wine. And what does wine represent, church? He poured out his blood. He poured out his blood. It was an antiseptic. It was for healing. And Jesus has done the same on the cross. He's poured out his blood. He's poured out his spirit so that the people of God might be healed. Now, this is really beautiful. But how many denarii did he leave? He left how many denarii to pay for his stay? Two. Now, we don't know exactly how many days that would, that would cover. Uh, some of the most recent findings say that that would have covered a month, uh, one denarii and another month the other. But the beautiful thing that I love is he's covered the future and then he made this statement to the innkeeper. He said, here's my uh, two denarii, but if I come back and I still owe more, I'll pay it. Because, here's the point, look at me, because he's coming back. And the good news of Jesus Christ is not only has he given us his spirit and he's given us his blood, but what else did he promise he was going to do, church? He promised that he would come back. I was talking to my son, he's four, about this this morning because he couldn't get through his head that Jesus has paid for his sins, not just the sins he commits today, but the sins that he's going to commit when he's 10 or he's 20. And he, this was blowing Gaines' mind. He couldn't, he couldn't understand. I said, Gaines, isn't it crazy? God loves us so much that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that when we're in Christ, he's already forgiven us of our future sin. Isn't that amazing, church? Because God has more future grace than you and I have future sin. That's astonishing. And so my question for us as we kind of take this in and we sit with it is this. When this man comes to, after he's been taken care of and he's been healed and, and Jesus is the good Samaritan has paid his way, can you imagine him coming up and getting back to life and realizing that he had someone who loved him enough that while he had no ability to lift himself up, paid an exorbitant amount of sacrifice beyond sympathy, spent his own money. Can you imagine the next time that this man who had been healed comes up to someone in need of healing? Can you imagine this man having a hard heart? Walking to the other side and saying, somebody else will do it. I can't imagine that. And that is where the, that is where the activity of the church 
finds its ground, its fountainhead. That's where we find our headwaters for the doing of the church. You see, very clearly, I want to point this out before we close today. We do not earn our salvation. There's no amount of doing that earns us salvation. It is Christ who does all the work on the cross. But, like Dallas Willard says, the gospel is opposed to earning, but the gospel is not opposed to work. And Christians for 2,000 years have been a people with sweat on their brow and dirt under their fingernails and calluses on their hands because as James said, we're not just going to be hearers of the word, but we're going to be what? Doers. And I thank God for a church full of doers. I'm serious. I'm inspired by the amount of doing that I have felt at New Spring Church for my time here. I thank God that today we'll have thousands of kids under the age of 12 that'll be in Kids Spring across our state, and there will be hundreds of doers serving them. I thank God for those of you that come and serve on a Wednesday night for our student ministry. We'll have 16, 17, 1800 students here this coming Wednesday night, and we've got hundreds of folks that are doing something to reach the next generation. I thank God for the men and women who have faithfully given with their tithes, their offerings, and they're doing something. Church Christians are, are who have built the hospitals and the schools and the orphanages. They're who builds things like uh, our recovery centers and, and our clinics that help women that are caught in pregnancy and don't know where to go. The church is active. The church is way more than us gathered here on a Sunday morning. We are in everyday relationship with God, and we are doing something. I'm so pumped about that. But my real question is this. Look at me. The way that this takes hold is you and I answering this question. Are you doing something right now? Don't let the bystander effect of a room full of hundreds of people go. Somebody will take extreme ownership of that. I want the prompt today to be for you, sir, ma'am. Are you doing something? Don't settle for just coming into a building on a Sunday morning. This is where we get to come together and worship God. But the Bible says very clearly in Ephesians 3 that the church gathers for the equipping of the saints so that we might go and do the work of the ministry for the rest of the week. And so we want to go out of our way to help equip you. Help equip you in groups. Help equip you at Connect Class. Help train you up so you might do something to reach the next generation. I want you, every single one of you, to understand that that same Good Samaritan spirit that healed you will make and call you to be a healer of others where you cannot ignore those that are beaten up, broken down, and robbed by this world laying on the side of the road. We must do something. Would you say this phrase with me? I'll do it. I say it with a little gusto this morning. I'll do it. When I see a need, I'll do it. When I feel that there's somebody that needs to step in, I'll do it. When we look at a world that is broken and lost, we'll do it. That's the kind of people and the Spirit of God inside of us that we want to take hold of. I want to encourage you to. So now, I'm going to invite you to your feet on all of our campuses. And we're going to enter into some ministry time. But this is something that I love in our services we do every week. And the reason is this. We believe James 1.22. Don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers. Pastor Lee McDermott over at our Greenville campus, his uh, mama taught him this phrase, and it's so good. Moms and dads, it's a little earworm for you. All there is to it is to James 1.22 it. We're called to also have an emphasis on action. I want to help you take your next step today in stepping into doing something. 
Let's, let's not be those people that just love generally and settle for slacktivism on social media. Let's get our hands dirty doing something. Let's serve. Let's partner together. Let's partner with other churches and other ministries. And let's make a, let's make a decision today to do something. Don't leave your building today without hearing from a pastor about how you can activate this good Samaritan spirit in your own life. And let's be those kind of people. If you'll receive that, would you say amen? Amen. I'm going to invite our ministry teams to come and jump into your stations. We've got prayer stations. We've got communion stations. We've got a cross in every room. And some of us, maybe today, have not yet answered that question of where you'll spend eternity. I want you to know today you can respond by receiving the good news of the Good Samaritan, Jesus Christ. Let him pour his spirit and his blood out over your life and by faith receive forgiveness of sin. By faith look forward to spending eternity with him. And that same spirit is what's going to give you your spiritual gift so that you might use it, be equipped to do the work of ministry. So saints in the room, if you're going to come and receive communion today, realize that he gave oil and he gave blood, oil and wine. He gave his body and his spirit for you so you might be equipped to do the work of the ministry. Let me pray and then we'll respond. Father God, we thank you today for the Good Samaritan. We thank you for your spirit that in embodies that same work, and you're with us even now. Lord, I pray today for us to have an I'll do something about it action. For men and women, old and young, college and retiree, married and single, every kind of ethnicity in the room, Lord, that your church would still be the kind of people that activate and have an emphasis, a bias towards doing. Not because we've got to earn our salvation, but because we've received freely, we will do the good work you call us to in our day to be courageous to love our neighbor. Make us good neighbors for your glory, our joy, and the world's good. In Christ's name, amen.